Well, if you guys were here last week, we started a brand new series going through the book of Ruth. We're going to continue that this week, so if you guys would like to open up to that great book, and uh, we'll get started in that. What we are going to be taking a look at in this series is we've been really looking at and identifying how God works through really unforeseen circumstances. Oftentimes, the circumstances that God works and uses in our lives are oftentimes accompanied with pain and sorrow and hardship, and even though oftentimes in the midst of pain, sorrow, and hardship... Uh, it's difficult for us to see God's hand in the middle of that, and so therefore we oftentimes have a tendency to misjudge God. Uh, we likened it to last week almost being uh, three chapters into a 30-chapter book, and we've already assumed what the end's going to be. And so therefore, because we assume that God is the author of it, which he is, we assume correctly, uh, we also sometimes falsely assume that God's powerless and so therefore he's not able to save us or he doesn't have some sort of big master plan by which he's working so therefore oftentimes we judge him and so in reality if we were to able to hold on and to see what God's doing uh, we would actually see that what God's doing in our life personally is that God's doing a good work it's like a tapestry that God's sewing together all these different pieces together in our life for the purposes of his own glory. The problem is oftentimes, like a tapestry, we're not looking at the top side of the tapestry. We're looking at the bottom side of a tapestry. And so we see all these like broken strings, uh, just mitch, mismatched colors, and we don't fully understand or see what's happening because we're looking at it from the wrong side. One of the beautiful things that we get to observe with regard to the book of Ruth is the book of Ruth is a narrative. It's a story of someone else that we get to sort of peer in on and look at God's fullness of purposes throughout her life. And one of the beautiful things as well about the book of Ruth is that Ruth is just one story of many in the Bible that we're actually able to look at various people's lives and see God fulfill and work out his purposes. So therefore, in a lot of ways, the message of the book of Ruth is that God's trying to communicate to us that he actually has not forsaken us, that God is actually active. He's not passive. He's working and has not just simply pulled away uh, in our lives. And sometimes that God involves himself in our lives or when he does oftentimes it might be accompanied by suffering or might be accompanied by difficulty and so for us uh, we need to really try to learn how to understand and have a theological perspective that allows for us to see that suffering may oftentimes be a part of God's handiwork by him working his way out in our lives that in a lot of ways is what the book of Ruth is about we saw that in the book of Ruth that there are several different players going on in the book or several, several different roles playing in the book. Uh, the two predominant roles in the book are women, which interestingly enough is very unique in the fact that in the entire Bible, there are no other books that actually have predominant figures in a book surrounded women. I mean, Esther is the only book that comes closest to that. But if you remember at the beginning of the book of Esther, Esther comes into the scene under the arm of a man. In other words, she's introduced into the storyline, into the plot, as a result of a man. In the book of Ruth, it's actually completely inverted, where the story is about two women, and men come into the story. They're not the central figures of the themes of the story. They come into the story by way of the woman. It's very interesting. There's no other book in the entire Bible quite like that. And this actually should be surprising for us if you lived first century or if you lived several thousand years ago when the book itself would have been written. For us, in the culture in which we live in, that we see sort of the other side of women's rights, 
we tend to just look at that and assume that that's the way things have always been. But in reality, women have not always been given the place or given the role or given the voice that they oftentimes have had. And so in many ancient cultures and even in many cultures today, women oftentimes uh, are in a place where they are not viewed with great or high regards within the culture and the society. In a culture, for example, even the first century, around Jesus' day, when men would oftentimes pray, and these, by way of being religious men, Jewish religious men, they would oftentimes pray a prayer something like this, God, I thank you that I'm not a woman or a Gentile. And they actually prided themselves on the fact that they were born into this world, thanking God that they were not born as a woman. Because oftentimes women were stripped of any type of identity, and any type of identity a woman would ever have would always be associated with either a man or childbearing. Those are the two most significant ways in which a woman would ever find her place in culture or in society, in ancient civilizations, but also at the same time in many civilizations, even in the world in which we live in today. It's just the way it always was. And so what you're going to get to see is that the Bible actually peers into this whole world and begins to sort of rearrange it and say that even though culture and society may relegate or push women uh, or even types of women that we'll look at in a second here, off into the margins of society, it's actually the margins of society in which God reaches to grab the most important players in his themes of redemption. This is amazing about the book of Ruth. So what I want to do right now is I want to begin to look at two specific characters that are going to be very central to the theme or the storyline of the book of Ruth. And uh, we didn't really develop this that much last week. And one of the reasons why I want to pause and just take a few moments and try to develop this this week uh, is because for the most part, for us as a culture, when we hear these two words I'm going to throw out to you and I'll suggest to you in a second, for the most part, we do not think about them in the same way that you would have thought about them a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, or even three thousand years ago. That these particular themes or words that we're going to use that identify or describe the women that are going to be playing the main central roles in the book, um, people would have read this and been shocked that these two ladies and the two predicaments in which these ladies find themselves in, they would have been shocked that God actually would have even used them in this storyline. So um, what I want to do first and foremost, I want to pray and then we'll get to work at taking a look at the two themes or the two types of roles that are introduced to us in the story. The two roles are uh, widowhood or the widow and then the second one is the lady who's also infertile. So those are the two types of women that we'll look at. I'll explain why those are going to be significant in a second, why they had such a cultural or had, had a lot of cultural baggage attached to them in a second. But let's pray that we'll get to work and then we'll begin to uh, uh, jump back into the actual theme of the story. God, we just give you thanks for this morning. We thank you, Father, that you have a purpose and a plan. Uh, the way that you did even thousands of years ago in the life of Ruth, in the life of Naomi, God, we thank you that we can learn from that, that you also have a plan for us in our lives, uh, that your word is, is clear to oftentimes tap into these ancient stories and use them as sort of narratives, not just distant narratives, but actually as narratives that are close to us, that God all of us, we're looking for some sort of way to identify our lives with significance. And God, our sin, our great sin, is that oftentimes we tap into um, storylines and narratives that oftentimes lead to some form of idolatry and that lead to some form of oppression and brokenness and destruction. And yet, God, you desire to rescue us from that and bring us into life by bringing us into your storyline, into your narrative, allowing us to see that, God, you authored us you authored our life. You scripted 
the storyline of our lives. And God, the way that we receive that and understand that is by trusting you, trusting you with our lives, trusting you with the pen to spell out our lives, to script out our lives. So we just give you this morning, give you this time, and we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin, first of all, by taking a look at the widow. Um, again, first century, or even several thousand years ago, during the time of this book, when it would have been written, the idea of a woman being a widow, widow would have carried along with it all sorts of cultural baggage. Um, the actual name widow in the Hebrew is actually a very telling word. Uh, alama is actually the... the um, the actual Hebrew word that's used there, uh, I'm sorry, almana, and literally it comes from a root, root word, alem, that basically means unable to speak or without a voice. That's a very telling word because for the most part, uh, when, a, when a woman lost her husband, she also lost her voice. In other words, she was one of those types of people in culture, in society, that was silent. She might speak, but she wouldn't be heard. In other words, she might be able to try to communicate, but in reality, what she had to say carried zero weight. She was not important in any way, shape, or form in a very male-dominated male culture or society. And so the reality is, is that it was one of the reasons why oftentimes people can look at the Bible and they falsely criticize it or judge it as being very uh, male chauvinistic and whatnot. And I'll address that in a second here. But for right now, I just want you to identify and understand and sort of feel a little bit of the plight of the widow. Because once a woman lost her husband, she also lost her footing in society or in culture. Uh, in other words, it was a man that actually gave her an identity. Without a man, she had no hope, she had no help, she had no strength, she had no voice, she had no protection, no covering. She basically was in a very vulnerable state. And so first and foremost, we're introduced to the life of Naomi, and Naomi is one of the main central themes or characters of the story. She happens to be one of the main people that God is going to use. She also happens to be a widow, and we're told in the first five verses that it basically just tells us in very simple, stark terms uh, that her husband died, and that's it. doesn't elaborate. Uh, the actual circumstances surrounding her husband's death are unimportant to the actual storyline. It just wants us to feel the weight of the, or the sting of the fact that Naomi happens to be a widow. And like I said, for us, in our culture, we hear widowhood. It just doesn't hit us or arrest us with the same type of sting it would have them. Because we look at it and we think, well, maybe they, someone's got family that can surround them. Maybe the wife had a, you know, a rich husband or had some sort of big insurance policy, uh, you know, $250,000. It might be able to help sustain her. She can live in some sort of a nice retirement home. And oftentimes we think that there are systems set in place, especially in America, that we oftentimes rely upon hoping that this will take care of it. But in those ancient cultures and sy uh, uh, systems, um, the way it was set up is that the husband, first and foremost, would take care of the wife. Once he dies, then the sons would then take care of the, of the woman, of the mom. But in this particular case, the interesting scenario with Naomi is, again, first five verses, not only did Naomi lose her husband, but she also, also lost her son. So again, the idea is that this is a woman that's been completely stripped of everything she has, of everything. She has no voice. She has no footing in society. She basically can be identified as a woman that has no identity. Everything's been taken from her. She's completely thrown into the margins of society, completely thrown in the margins of culture. She would have been and found herself in a very vulnerable state. 
And uh, this idea of vulnerability is picked up even in the New Testament where Jesus talks about uh, a group of people, in this particular case, religious leaders, uh, who actually took advantage of him. And Jesus said this in Mark chapter 12. He says, and they, referring to the scribes and the Pharisees, they have their best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. They devour widows' houses. (laughs) And so you can just hear the the frustration in Jesus' voice. He's like, you want to know how bad The religious leaders are, they're so bad, they actually take advantage of of the widow. Uh, I think it's in Luke chapter 18. Jesus actually gives this really uh, crazy parable, and the parable is basically about a widow who has nothing, and again, you can kind of catch the flavor of the starkness of what Jesus is trying to do. You have a widow who has absolutely nothing, no voice, no ability, no rights, completely vulnerable, um, and she's going up against a judge, and this judge has all, all honor, all power, all might. In fact, Jesus adds this little description about the judge. It says that the judge doesn't fear God and doesn't fear man. In other words, he's a God unto himself. He's the highest supreme authority. And he is being uh, petitioned by this lowly widow who is at the lowest level Uh, on the same level as plankton. That's about all she is, right? She's at the lowest level of the food chain. And she petitions this judge and begs him eagerly, passionately, regularly, constantly, uh, to some degree, stalks him every day, petitions him for justice. And Jesus says, you know what? The judge finally gave in, even though he's a God unto himself, he gave in, relented to this woman who has nothing. Jesus uses that as his parable to say, you know what, you are children of God and you have a father who also is a judge who absolutely loves you. How much more would your father who loves you answer your prayers if a judge who is godless would answer the prayer of plankton? How much more would your dad who loves you answer your prayers? This is a beautiful picture. Again, the point of the matter is, is that widows, women for the, for the most part didn't have a voice, but women who had no husband, had no man in their life, had no voice at all. That would be the place where Naomi would have found herself. She would have been oftentimes viewed as insignificant. I love the way that Jesus even uh, introduces uh, into his whole scheme of salvation in the the second chapter of Luke. Um, We're actually told of a gal by the name of Anna. Uh, She was married for about seven years, and at some point throughout the duration of her life, we have no idea when she got married, we had no idea when her husband died, how old she was, but we're told that she was like somewhere in her mid-80s, this old lady there in the temple worshiping God day and night, and all of a sudden, she gets this joy of seeing Jesus, and we're told in Luke chapter 2, it says this, in about verse 38, it says, in the coming of the very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So this girl, Anna, who is also a widow, she actually sees Jesus come into the temple and is moved by the fact that this is the Messiah, this is the hope of Israel, she goes out and she becomes actually the very first evangelist. So it's an amazing thing that God is sort of setting the stage saying, look, even the widows, even the women, perhaps even widowed women, the lowest form of cultural, within the cultural and the society, the lowest type of person within the entire system, Jesus says, not only do I care about them, But I'm also going to allow one of them, Anna, to be the spokesman, the very first spokesman to announce the gospel. It's an amazing reality. So evidently, 
even though cultures in the past viewed widows with great disregard, had written them off into the margins, it's our God that actually reaches into the margins and pulls them out and says, no, I'm not going to retire them to some sort of home where they can be forgotten. God says, I actually love them. They're the ones that are hurting. They're the ones that are vulnerable. They're the ones that I want to use for my redemptive purposes. That's what God does. Carolyn Custis James, who wrote a book uh, called The Gospel of Ruth, said this, The widow is God's exhibit A to teach the world and his people just how far we have to go before our thoughts and our actions line up with God's. I love that. That challenged me. Because to be quite frank with you, when I look at my life and I ask myself, where in my scheme, where in my life, where in my list of agenda or list of things to do in the agenda of my life, where is there on that list any sort of inkling or hint of a widow or any inkling or hint of a vulnerable person? Uh, Do they even make their way into my life? I was challenged by this. I mean, the reality is when I just simply face the facts and look at the Bible for what it is, I realize my thoughts are so far disconnected and so far removed my actions are from even God's. i got to repent. I want to repent. I want to be different. I want to act differently. That somewhere in God's heart is this huge longing and passion and desire to help those, are the most, those that are the most vulnerable, those that are the most hurting in culture and society. Back in uh, the book of Ruth, Naomi would have been classified as that. She would have been a card-carrying loser in the culture. But in God's eyes, she was very, very purposeful or profitable, I should say, for God's purposes. Okay, the second thing that we see is not only the widow, but we also see, secondly, the infertile um, or the barren. And again, this is important to kind of understand this because the Bible actually talks a lot about women that were infertile or women that didn't that kind of suffered and struggled through this plight of not being able to have a child, which basically that's what that means. So if you're a guy, you're like, infertile, I don't know what that is. It actually means unable to have a baby, all right? Um, and if you've ever met anybody that has not been able to have a baby, a woman that is, uh, you begin to realize it's a very tough place for a woman to be. And it's a very hard place for a woman to be that oftentimes one of the number one desires that a woman has is at some point to get married and some point to have children. And if once that ball begins to roll and they're able to kind of move into the place now where they want to have babies or where they're capable of having babies and they're not able to have children, it's a very, very difficult, hard place to be. Oftentimes they suffer in their silence Not many people really know what's going on. Not really many people in our culture even like to talk about infertility. It's not something that people typically are prone to talk about. It's not, you know, discussion or conversation that gets brought up. By the way, I'm infertile. Like, we just don't talk about that. It's very interesting in the Bible, though. There are these moments where the Bible is just going to describe, like, for example, um, Ruth. It says in the first five verses that for ten years she was married. She had no babies. So for ten years... Apparently, in the culture that she lived in, she strived and wanted and desired, no doubt, and prayed for to have a baby and was unable to have a baby. Now, the reality is that this was very difficult. And in those cultures, if you were, for example, married like Ruth was, and for 10 years incapable of having a baby or inconceivable of being able to have a baby, 
you would have now been had, you, you would have been given a stigma attached to you, that you were infertile. That was a horrible stigma to live under. A horrible thing to have to wear and to bear because nobody wanted to be viewed with that stigma of being infertile. And that was where Ruth was. Let me give you an example why this was so poignant in that culture. And I'll try to bring some sort of a connection with this in our cultural, in our, in our day-to-day. I think the best way to try to understand why this was so significant in the day of Ruth, as well as even in the first century, and as well as even in other cultures today, um, for example, where having babies is very important, but not just any baby, but having male babies is very important. You know that in China, they're only allowed to have one child, and the one child that everybody wants to have is what? It's a boy. You have a daughter? That's horrible. You throw, daughters are disposable. You get rid of daughters. You toss them into some sort of an orphanage. And there's this massive boom of of daughters that need to be adopted from China. As an example, because, I'll tell you why, reason why this oftentimes happens and why this happened even in Ruth's case, is because every culture has what I would describe as cultural idols. Here's what I mean. Every culture, it's always been this way. It is this way today. Uh, I'll hopefully try to identify some of our cultural idols. So we, you know... uh, can actually think about this as well. But the reality is, for example, in the Bible times, there were these idols I would describe that were very cultural. And the idea was you want to have babies. And not just any babies, but you want to have a boy. Because the goal of the matter was is you want to have lots of boys because the more boys that you can have means that you have a greater chance of carrying on your family line, your family name for many generations once you're gone. And that was a desire because it was a way for your name to live on and on and on and on. There was a huge desire for that. Now, the question comes, is there anything wrong with having babies? Is there anything wrong with having boys? Is there anything wrong with wanting to have a family name to continue to go on and live on? Like a legacy. There's nothing wrong with that. Those are good values. The problem is, with any type of idolatry, when we take a good value and turn it into an ultimate value, that becomes a god. It becomes an idol that governs us, that controls us, that exercises tyranny and oppression over us. So I'll give you an example. In that day, to be infertile meant that you're worthless. You're worthless to any guy. Because every guy in the culture not only wants to have babies, but wants to have male babies. And here you're a woman that is incapable of delivering anything. You're damaged goods. Absolutely worthless to that culture. Now, again, this is where sometimes people look at the Bible and they say, it's horrible, man. The Bible is just this bad book. It teaches all sorts of, you know, oppresses women. It's a horrible book and so on and so forth. And, and, and the funny thing is, is that it's one of the most hypocritical things to say is because we're saying that from 21st century where we're surrounded by idols. I'll hopefully identify at least one of them in a second here. And we're looking into an ancient culture and saying, how dare they do that? How dare they exercise some sort of oppression? But the reality is you can begin to see how when you have a cultural idol that says produce babies and a lot of them and make sure that they're male. Can you imagine women living under that type of oppression? So here you get married, 10 years into marriage, you're already struggling with the reality of not being able to have babies, which is a good thing. You want babies and you can't have babies. Add to that your husband keeps tapping his foot in front of you. When are you going to deliver? When are you going to bring it on? When's it going to happen? Especially in the culture when they would view that infertility was for the most part a female issue. She was the one to blame. 
Of course, men are always perfect and are always shooting straight. And the reality is, is that it must be the guys that are shooting straight. It's the women that somehow are not capable. And that's this type of oppression they would live under. They would live under this intense oppression to somehow produce, to make, and now they can't. But can you imagine ladies living in this culture where if you could not have a baby, your husband comes home one day and either says, I want a divorce, you're not bringing me any children, I've been with you for 10 years, nothing's happened. Can you imagine the type of rejection you would feel as a result of that? Or add to that, if not divorce, your husband comes home, brings home this beautiful little 22-year-old girl under his arms and says, I found someone who's going to replace you, but I'll still be married to you. You'll just live in the back house. I'll raise my family that this beautiful young girl will bring to me in the front house. I'll try not to forget you. I'll make sure you have food on the plate for as long as you live. And that's about it. And that was the way that culture and civilization would work. Now, again, like I said, many people look in the Bible and be like, how horrible that this is, this is the way things operate. What you need to understand is that actually... The Bible is a book that describes the cultural setting and the cultural idols and the cultural oppression that they lived under. But what you see is that you see God actually pulls into the margins and pulls into those that are oppressed and says, you know what, even though everybody else has forsaken them, even though everybody else has written them off, even though everybody else has found them undesirable, even though everybody else has just simply pushed them to the sidelines, God says, I'm going to use them for my purposes. I won't forsake them. I won't cast them off. I won't write them away. I won't disregard them. I won't disown them. In fact, God says, I will deeply covenant myself to them and bring them into my story. It's absolutely amazing. Let me give you an example of art idols in our culture. Um, we don't worship um, babies. <laughs> we don't worship having families. That's not our culture. Um, I think the most recent statistic I heard is that the average American-sized family is like uh, two and a half children. I was talking to a little kid not so long ago, and they're like, how can you have two and a half? I said, it's two big ones and one small one. And the reality is, I don't know. But the point of the matter is, is that two and a half kids is sort of the major size. Now, obviously, that's changed from, say, 50 years ago, where family size was massive back then compared to today. It's not unusual to see people with, you know, families of like two. I got two daughters myself. Sometimes people ask me, shouldn't you have a son? Why? I love daughters. Okay, I'm, I'm happy with my two daughters. But the point of the matter is, is that in our culture, we don't have this massively huge value system placed upon you must have a big family, you must work hard to somehow get fertile, you must somehow produce babies and keep them coming again and again. We just, this is not the value system that we live in. Our value system is a little bit different. Here's, I think, a cultural order that we have. is we want to look good, right? So as soon as a mom has, like, her two kids, she immediately hits the gym, works out, makes sure that she gets six-pack abs again so how she, she can keep looking good for the rest of her life. We want to look sexy. We want to look good because that's our value system. If you're going to have babies, at least look like you've never had babies, and women live under this insane pressure to somehow live according to that. Is that true? It's absolutely true. Let me ask you, is that oppressive? All right, is that hard? It's horrible. Because what happens is women are, are women, they live under this oppression to somehow look a certain way, to act a certain way, to have a certain size waistline. And these are idolatries that we have in our culture that we live by. And they are oppressive, just as oppressive as 
2,000, 3,000 years ago where her woman is living under this oppression of a husband, demanding her to somehow produce children. And she can't. And our God comes in the middle of this and says, look, culture dismisses you. Culture says you're undesirable. The culture, the society has written you off. But God says, no, you're part of my story. You're who I want to use. I love you. I find you desirable. I find you as somebody I want to be a part of my program, my plan, my message, my storyline, my narrative. And that's what God does. He pulls into the margin margins and finds Naomi this widow and finds Ruth who is not only a widow but also she's infertile. So I want to jump into the text right now and begin to read through some of this and then finish up with some closing points. Uh, verse 6 we start right here and it says then she that's Naomi she arose with her daughters-in-law to return um, from the country of Moab for she had heard that the fields of Moab uh, that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So again, we pointed out last week how that Naomi had moved away from the region of Israel, from a city called Bethlehem, which ironically means house of bread. And she moved away from house of bread because there was no bread. That's the irony of the story, that there was no food in the city called house of bread. And so ironically, what we're going to see kind of in the sort of larger mega theme of this book is that God one day will bring Naomi back Ruth will actually come back with her, so I'm giving you a little bit of the story ahead of time. And Ruth will ultimately give birth to King David, who ultimately from King David will give birth to the Messiah. Jesus will come along and say, I'm the bread of life. From Bethlehem. From Bethlehem. So God's in this incredible journey of restoration uh, from this incredible tragedy that had befallen Naomi, which brought about her widowhood and had befallen Ruth that not only brought about widowhood, but also this infertility. And so she says, uh, let's return back to Moab. And uh, what the narrator does here in about verses uh, 6 through 7, just sort of lays down some more groundwork and uh, some fine details as to what's going on. And then what we're going to begin to see from about verse 8 on to about verse 18 is you'll see three dialogues that begin to take place and shape up that kind of had to do around... Um, Three main figures. So you'll see Naomi, and she'll be interacting with her two daughters-in-law, one of which is Ruth, who will go on, and we'll see most, her mostly throughout the story. We'll see another one named Orpah, which, by the way, because I need to just give you guys spiritual facts, did you guys know that Oprah actually got her name Orpah was her original name? Did you know that? You didn't know that? Now you know that. Now you're way better because of that. You're welcome. And... Uh, they couldn't pronounce Orpah for some reason, so they said, let's just call her Oprah. Oprah. So that's what they did. So anyways, um, she walks away from God and uh, the people of God, and so that's what happens with Orpah, but we won't see her that much. Anyhow, anyways, back on track, we see these three ladies, they're going to be dialoguing and discussing, and so the whole point that's going to be taking place here over the next three dialogues, which we'll only look at two, is Naomi is actually going to be trying to talk uh, Orpah and Ruth out of following her. So if you guys can figure this out or understand this, Naomi, uh, 10 years prior, moves from Bethlehem with her husband into this region called Moab. Moab was about 50 miles uh, to the east of Bethlehem. So if you can picture in your mind, it's actually in the modern-day region called Jordan. And so they lived there for about 10 years. During the duration of living there for about 10 years, uh, or maybe even a little bit longer, uh, her sons end up getting married to these uh, Moabite women. Uh, 
Naomi's husband dies, Naomi's two sons die, and basically this incredible plight falls upon her, and she realizes uh, life has been bad for me, it's not a good place to live, I want to go back, so she's about to go back, and her two daughters-in-law are following her, I think in a lot of ways they feel very displaced, and they also feel loyal, they love their mother-in-law, they've been connected to their mother-in-law, unfortunately they were not able to produce children for the mother-in-law, which was an important part of the culture as well, and uh, so they, therefore all these women are just very disturbed and going through dark, hard places throughout life. And about verse 7, it says, so she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. And again, because uh, she catches rumor that somehow there's a barley harvest or some, some sort of a grain harvest that God has uh, blessed the land again um, in a very interesting, ironic way. In about verse 6, uh, there's just this little phrase that says, the Lord visited his people and had given them food. Um, it's a phrase that actually appears several times throughout the Old Testament. It's a phrase that actually appears uh, when God came to Sarah and says that God visited Sarah. It's also a phrase that appears uh, with a gal by the name of Hannah. She was also infertile and says that God visited Hannah. And so I think what's going on here is the author are, is planting these little subtle hints that at the end of the day, whether it's food or whether it's the womb, that fertility always, always, always comes from the hand of God. All the time. No matter what's going on in our lives. Uh, God's hand is always the thing that gives life. No life comes from any other source except the hand of God. And so I think the author uh, writes this down as a sort of subtle hint of what's to come. That even though heading back to Judah might seem uh, a very difficult step for Ruth especially, uh, at the end of the day, it's God's hand that brings forth this sense of fruitfulness. Verse 8, it says, but Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, this is the first of uh, three dialogues, but Naomi said to her uh, two daughters-in-law, go return each of you to your mother's house, and may the Lord deal kindly with you as you dealt with me, and with the uh, dead, and with me. So Naomi starts off, and she says, listen, you need to go back to your mother's house, which by the way, again, another interesting phrase, the only other time that phrase, mother's house, appears in the Bible is actually in the book of Song of Solomon, and it's a, it's a phrase that actually has to do with fruitfulness, because oftentimes if a woman died, she wouldn't go back to her mother's house, she'd go back to her father's house, and it would be in her father's house that she would wait or find protection, uh, again, because women really didn't have a voice for the most part in culture and society. It was the men who had the voice in the culture and society, it was the men that would provide some sense of protection and covering for a woman, and so therefore, going back to a father's house would seem to be a safe thing. But here Naomi says, go back to your mother's house, which is probably a poetic way of saying, you need to get a husband. And your husband and your fruitfulness is going to come by going back to your mother's house. Again, it's just kind of a poetic way that's used in the Song of Solomon. And she says, may the Lord deal kindly with you. Uh, this is the first time uh, important word that appears in the book of Ruth. We'll look at it more next time we come across this word. It's actually a Hebrew word called hesed. Um, and it basically is a word that identifies God's covenant love with his people. Some of your translations might say God's shown kindness to me or God's shown love to you. It's a word that's even more than love. Um, our culture, the way that we think of love is completely messed up. We oftentimes think of love as a feeling. We say like, I love this church, I love this person, or I love, you know, ice cream or whatever. And we have one word to use to describe all sorts of different types of relationships that are not even equal in any way. And yet the idea of God showing kindness is not just simply God having 
you know, sweet affection for us or feeling something very good inside. But the reality is that God has covenanted himself, that God has demonstrated kindness. Uh, we'll look at that word again more so when we get to it again. But she's saying, you guys have shown me great kindness. Shown me great covenantal kindness. May God continue to show that same kindness to you guys that you've shown to me. Verse 9, the Lord grant you that you might find rest, each of you in your house of your husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted their voices, and they wept. And they said to her, no, we will return uh, with you to your people. And so the first time, she basically is trying to talk them out, saying, don't come back with me. Go back to your people. Go back to your gods. Go back to your culture. Go back to that. But both of these, both of these women at this particular point say, no, we're committed to you. We're going to continue to come to you. So you can imagine this. Here they are walking maybe on this dirt road from the region of Moab back into the region of Judea. Uh, Judea. It's about a 50-mile hike. Here they are walking back. And all of a sudden, uh, Naomi's like, you guys, just stay home. Stay here. There's nothing for you in my country and again, it's kind of an interesting thing because here you got these two Moabite women going back into a strictly Jewish culture. Moabites, as I mentioned last week, are not in any way friends of the Jews. The Jews hated the Moabites. Um, was, if you can think of it this way, uh, they were like rivals. And they had these like tribal rivalries with each other. Constantly, regularly. They were always bickering, always fighting over territory, over land, over goods, over stuff just constantly fighting and bickering. So it just so happens to be that Naomi has two daughters-in-law that are basically enemies. Now, she loves them. She cares for them. She has friendship with them. But bringing them back home into the town, into the hood where she's from, isn't going to go so good. All right? So she's anticipating the fact that when I bring you guys home, it's not going to be good. Everyone's going to know that, A, not only are you a widow, B, not only are you infertile, which means you guys are going to have this stigma on you. You will never get married. No one will ever love you. No one will ever care for you. Can you imagine this? Um, and on top of all this, you're a Moabite, which means that you are nothing more than bacon on God's barbecue. That's about it. That's what you are. And the reality is, is what I, what I love about Naomi is Naomi just simply looks at these ladies. She doesn't understand all of God's purposes, Right? I mean, she's, just, she's trying to look out with this best perception that she can have and say, your greatest hope of life is not with me. It's going back. But how wrong was Naomi? I mean, totally wrong. We know that because most of you guys probably know the rest of the story. But the reality is that she didn't know she was wrong at the time. She's just simply trying to be pragmatic, trying to be practical, trying to look at all the possibilities, look at all the facts, realizing that, look, you're a widow, you're infertile, everybody knows you've been married for 10 years, you have no babies to show for it, you're going to be the talk of the town in a very negative way, bloggers are going to come out of the woodwork, everyone's going to tweet about you, you will not be in any way desirable because you can't have babies, my hood, everybody wants babies. You can't have babies. You're nobody, and you have no hope. That's where these ladies are. So she tries to talk them out. Verse 11, but Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night, 
and should have and should bear sons immediately would you therefore wait till they were grown would you therefore refrain from marrying no my daughters for it is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake that the hand of the lord has gone out against me so who does naomi blame for the plight of difficulty in her life god she's like look god's dealt very bitterly with me if you go with me, that same curse, same thing that's on me is going to get on you guys. I love you too much. I'm begging you, go back, go away, stay away, don't follow me, because there's nothing but curse that's going to continue to just sort of flow from me to you guys should you continue to follow me. Was she a woman that was in great travail? Absolutely. Was she a woman that was probably very depressed? Probably. She was a woman that was in great bitter turmoil and bitter sorrow because simply at the end of the day, she just didn't understand God. She didn't understand what God was doing. So one of the beautiful things that we can look at with regard to the book of Ruth is that we know from the end, because we can read the end of the story and see what God was doing throughout Naomi and Ruth's life, that God actually had some sort of sovereign plan that he was working out, even in spite of the way culture and society mistreated these types of uh, women in that system and in that culture, that God didn't treat them that way. God didn't view them as broken goods. God didn't write them off as just simply being worthless or undesirable. God looks at them and says, no, you're valuable. You're the type of people that I want for my kingdom purposes. I'm not going to relegate you off into the margins. I'm going to pull you out of the margins. I'm going to call you to active service and duty for my kingdom purposes. This is amazing to me. But this is just the way that God works, that God is always working this way. It's us who oftentimes, through cowardice and through disbelief, we just think that God can't use me because I'm too young, or God can't use me because I'm divorced, or God can't use me because I don't have any babies, God can't use me because I don't have a degree, God can't use me because I only went to you know, public school, God can't use me because I got bad grades in public school. I mean, we can go down the list of all these things and say, I'm not desirable by God. God's like, no, 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 that, that, that's just the point. I love choosing. I love using that which culture says is worthless. God's not very interested in somehow just tinkering with the columns of society and culture in the day in which we live and say, I just want to tweak it here, make it a little bit better so that the widow feels nice. And tweak it here so that the infertile woman feels like she's got a place. God's like, no, no, no. I'm not interested in just revamping it so that we can feel good about ourselves. God says, I'm interested in creating something totally new. It's one of the reasons why the New Testament actually identifies God's redemptive work as new creation. God says, I I want something brand new, something that will not just simply overhaul something that's broken and bad and messed up by adding a few new features to it. God says, I want to put a brand new engine in it so that we think entirely different about widows and think entirely different about the infertile and think entirely different about the broken and marginalized and hurting and orphaned and all those that society casts off and just simply puts a label on it that just says worthless. God says, I want people to think differently about my image bearers, that I have a purpose, I have a plan at work. A couple days ago, I was downtown and um, at Farmer's Market, and you know, I, I'd seen this one guy around town a lot. He's a homeless guy. Um, 
I don't know, he had a sign out this time that just, that just hit me. It struck me this, just a certain way. I told my wife later on the night, just, it just struck me. Something about it really just hit a chord in me. And, and I've seen this guy around town. He's, he's, a, he's, a, he's kind of a scary-looking dude. He's a big guy. And if I described him even further, you'd probably know who he was, but I'm not going to. And he just had this sign down, downtown that, that just this time, I'd never seen him carry this sign. The sign said this time, um, homeless, hungry, and ugly. I just think for some reason, like, like I, I mean, honestly, for me, I, look, I'll, I'll throw, you know, that's how I am. I just threw myself on the line. Yeah, I, I looked at the guy before, I'm like, yeah, dude, it's freaky looking. He's, he's not desirable looking. But there's something about that moment that he actually wore that label. That actually became him. He actually took that into himself and says, no, this is who I am. This is who I am. I am what everybody thinks I am. I'm just ugly. I'm just somebody that people can cast off and push away. That's who I am. And I think just walking by the guy, seeing that sign, seeing the desperation face. He actually had the sign up in front of his face, hiding it, because I think he just didn't want people to even see his face. Just for some reason, it just struck me. I just thought, man, God finds that guy lovely. Not because he's beautiful, not because he is lovely, but because he's an image bearer of God. Yeah, he might be in a body that might have problems and issues and disabilities and other features that are completely undesirable to a culture that values, you know, chiseled jaw and nice strong features on a body that rest of us can just cast it off and look at that and say it's worthless. But to God, he says, no, no, it's very much a part of my purposes. And so we learn something from the widow, and we learn something from the infertile that I think are really important. I want to wrap it up very quickly with this. But the widow and the infertile actually teach us three things in the story. The first of which is that God often recruits the broken, the despised, and the rejected for his kingdom purposes. These are the people whom God recruits for his purposes. There's at least three different ways I can see this. One, for example, when God wanted to create a nation, God wanted to start a nation at one point in history. God's like, all right, nice day. I'm going to start a nation. God's like, who should I pick? God says, you know what? I'm going to go find, I'm going to find a postmenopausal pagan woman who's 65 years old who's never had a baby. She's going to be the one I'm going to start a nation with, her and her husband who's 10 years older than her. So God chooses Abraham and Sarah and says, these are the ones I'm going to start a nation with. It's amazing. That this is the type of stuff that God does. He's just like, look, everybody's written her off. There's, when I call Abraham and Sarah and say, you're going you're gonna to be the founders of a nation, they're immediately going to jump to this assumption of how. I'm, I'm infertile. We've been married for a handful of years. I'm postmenopausal. I can't have any more babies. I've never had one in the first place. How are you going to do this? God's like, I've got stuff up my sleeve you have no clue about. God's like, I'm God. You don't know me yet. You will know me. You'll see me. Is there anything too difficult for me? That would be God's whole statement. Second thing, later on, the children of Israel got stuck in Egypt, and God wants to rescue this nation. So what God does is he's looking for someone who's despised by the nation. So he actually goes out into the wilderness, and he tracks down a fugitive. A fugitive from Egypt, once on staff, once a part of the nation, once a part of the governmental system. He commits a murder, gets, you know, 
banished and exiled out into the wilderness. And for 40 years, Moses lives as a fugitive, running from the nation of Egypt. And God says, look, I want to rescue a nation. So what I want to do is I want to call someone who is totally rejected by the Egyptians to march into the very courtroom that banished you. And I want you to start making demands to those who reject you. I was like, that seems like a really bad plan. God's like, this is what I'm doing. Moses tries to talk his way out of it. He's like, I'm not good at talking. I have a stutter. God's like, I know what I'm doing. I made the mouth. I know what I'm doing. And finally, one of the most amazing things, God says, I want to build a kingdom, and I want to save a world. And God says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to build the kingdom and use as its chief cornerstone a stone that's been rejected by everybody. God says, I'm going I'm to take Jesus, my son, and have him brutally crucified. Everyone will reject him. Everyone will turn their back on him. Even his closest followers, committed followers, will turn their back on him and simply walk away. Because God says, I want to create a nation. I want to create a new kingdom, a new world, a new work. And the way it will be done is through something that will be rejected greatly and explicitly. And God says, I'll call Jesus. So God has this way of actually recruiting the broken, the despised, and the rejected for his kingdom purposes. That's what we see with Ruth and Naomi. The second thing that we see is that God wants the glory, and he generously distributes his joy, that God wants the glory. Take a look at one of my favorite verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 123. Paul says this, we preach Christ crucified. So if anybody kind of wondered, like, like what Paul, what's, what's the whole kernel of your message what's the main thing you're wanting to get across Paul's like look it's pretty simple it's Jesus we just want to preach Jesus Paul says he's a stumbling block to the Jews he's foolishness to the Gentiles but to those of us who are called both Jews and Greeks Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God Uh, it's interesting because the Romans valued power they were all about power and strength and might and Greeks valued wisdom and the philosophies of the day and so on. And Paul says, you want to know who Jesus is? He's both power that the Romans long for but never get, and he's both wisdom that the Greeks desperately seek after and never find. That's all found in Jesus. Verse 25 says, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling. Now Paul makes it very personal. He says, for Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you are powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in this world, even those things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being would ever boast in the presence of God. Hear what Paul's saying? He says, looking out over this church there in the region called Corinth and he's writing this I'm sure he's thinking of people in his mind and he's just like look look at you guys I mean honestly look at yourself if I had a big mirror I'd throw it up and show you guys just like this is this is who God chose is there anything wonderful or great about us and the reality is if, if you're not a Christian you might be tempted to be like well yeah of course I graduated from public school that's nice. But the reality is, for the rest of us, we would look at ourselves and just be like, there's nothing good. We're not that great. I mean, if you live under the illusion that somehow you are great, 
at some point, you will be struck down with the reality that everything that you were banking on, everything that you were hoping in, was nothing more than just a fragile facade. It breaks down. It has an expiration date. God has a way of somehow reducing the idols of our life to absolute nothingness. And then we begin to realize, who are we? Where is our identity? What are we trying to live for? What are we trying to earn our respect or earn affirmation from that somehow we're never getting it? Paul's going to say, look, at the end of the day, God doesn't choose great, wonderful people that are because they're so smart and wise and intelligent and good-looking or powerful. God chooses weak people because at the end of the day, he wants the glory. This is super encouraging for me because, you know, at the end of the day, if, if God says, I only choose the strong or I only choose the really wise, I'd be like, I'm out then. I have to tap out. I can't, I can't do that. I'm not that smart. You know, I, I, I'm not that intelligent. I can't do it. That actually would be an oppression to me because I would then have to somehow work so feverishly to get myself to a place where I'm acceptable to God, and now I'm back into this religious cul-de-sac again. But if God can look at you and just say, look, I chose a bunch of foolish, unwise, very weak, very vulnerable people, and in them, I placed my seal, I've given them my identity, I've given them my life. Then at the end of the day, the one who gives the gift gets the glory. The one who receives the gift gets the joy. Do you know what that's what Christianity is about, guys? That's Christianity in a nutshell. That's why it's good news. You can't earn it. God gives it to you. That's the beauty of it. That's why Paul is going to say later on, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, for we have this treasure in jars of clay. And Paul just summarizes it like this. He's like, look, at the end of the day, here's what you are. You're a clay pot that's been formed and fashioned and shaped. You might have chips and gashes and brokenness, and there's all sorts of paint that's missing. It doesn't look that great. But inside that jar of clay, it's not just choice wine or not just choice virgin-pressed oil, but inside that jar of clay, something even far more weighty and valuable. Paul says it's God's glory. I don't even know how to... I don't even know how to fathom that or think of that. But do you know that today? If you're a Christian here today, if you are following Jesus, no matter how culture or how society has ever identified you or defined you, whatever type of label sin has placed upon you or somebody who sinned against you has placed upon you, you don't need to be defined by that. You don't need to be defined by the types of sins that you've committed or the types of sins that have been committed against you. Those labels don't have to identify you in the same way widow doesn't need to identify Naomi and infernal doesn't need to identify Ruth. That God says, I give you an identity. I call things into being. I reverse identities that the culture and society put around you and yoke you in and oppress you as a result of. God says, I love you and I set you free. It's absolutely amazing. This is the God that we serve. This is why Christianity is such good news that God comes along and says, I liberate you from all the labels that every other facet and form of culture puts on you. God says, I free you from that. 
And not only that, God says, I bring you into my story. And I do for you things that you can't even fathom to do for yourself. Because I'm God. The final thing is we see that God's able to do the impossible. God says to Abraham, is there anything too hard for me? Is there anything too hard for God? I want you to think about that. Is there anything too hard for God? That's what the story of Ruth tells us. Is that here these two women are, in the very last verse that we look at here today, it says this, in verse 14, then they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So here you are on this dirt road, in the middle of who knows where, on the corner of who knows what, and there are just, just drama, like literally drama, right in the middle of the street, just weeping, crying, just obsessing over the reality that there is no life ahead of us, and there is no life behind us. All we have is what is now. Chapter is over. Our lives are probably finished because there's no hope. You're a widow. I'm infertile. We have nothing. No one to speak for us. No voice to be given to us. And God says, the story's not over. You're only in chapter three of a 30-chapter epic tale, and you have no idea where I'm taking you. I will be a voice for you, and I am the God of fertility. I am the God that opens wombs. I am the God that plants crops. I am the God that waters, and I am the God that at the end of the day gives life. Do you believe that? I mean, do you really believe that? Some of us just don't. We think things like this. I don't think God has a spouse for me. I've got to work feverishly to get one. And the majority of our church is unmarried. I did a guy's study, men's basic training, and out of 60 guys, 10 of them were married. That's common in our church. 90%. 80% of our church is unmarried. And this is the big question everybody wrestles with. The clock's ticking. I'm getting to my late 20s, early 30s. Nothing's happened yet. Where's God? How come he hasn't shown up? How come he hasn't answered? I would love to have a baby one day. Love to have a baby with a husband someday. Love to have a baby with a spouse someday. And it's not happening. Where's God? And the message of Ruth is that do we really believe that God's capable or do we feel like we've got to take matters in our own hands and somehow work and move and carve our identity or somehow hold on to an identity so feverishly that you know what happens? You become a slave. You're not free. You're not free to enjoy your singleness. You're not free to redeem your singleness. You can't. You hate it. You despise it. It's a curse to you. Not because God calls it a curse, but because the culture in which you thrive and live and has told you and led you and caused you to feel it's a curse and you can't enjoy it. You can't use your singleness as an opportunity, as a vehicle to be used for the glory of God. At the end of the day, how big is our God? That's the question. How big is our God? Is he mighty? Is he powerful? Is he able to save? Is he able to take infertile wombs and make them fertile? Is he able to take infertile lives that are just fruitless and lifeless and give them life? Let me finish with this. I'm done. Again, Carolyn Custis James in her book, 
Gospel of Ruth says this. It takes God's megavoltage resurrection power to awaken a human soul from death to life. The same high voltage resurrection power that released Jesus from the tomb works every time in a sinner to turn sinners to Christ. Every child born into God's family is a miracle. God's resurrection power is at work through powerless people to bring dead souls to life. Do you believe that? We're going to worship. I'm going to have Mike come on up and lead us in some worship. We're going to have a time to respond. This is an opportunity for us to give back our worship and our praise to God. So these guys are coming up. I want to pray, but I want you to just think about this because this is a time to respond. We oftentimes have worship at the end because it's a time for us to respond. God's word is like a seed being poured out in our hearts. It's revelation. Singing, praying is a response of our heart in which we give back to God our affection, our love. And so for some of us, response may take the form of confession of sin. For some of us, it might take the fact that we verbalize our confession to God, saying, God, I have misjudged you. I've condemned you. I've said to the potter, why did you make me this way? For some of us, it's a matter of us needing to look to God and trust him. And ultimately, we will respond by partaking of communion. And that's, we do that as a way of reminding us of the fact that suffering is a part of God's plan. It was a part of God's plan of redemption through Jesus. We drink the cup. We eat the bread. It reminds us of the fact that Jesus himself, his body was broken. His blood was shed for us as a means of God's redemptive purposes in our lives. That God does not isolate us or remove us from any type of suffering, but that God actually wants to use suffering in our life to reveal cultural idols that we all bend down to, to bring us back to Jesus who actually wants to set us free by redeeming us, by restoring everything in our lives. First and foremost, by restoring us back to our, our God, who is life itself. So I'm going to pray, we'll sing, we'll confess, partake of communion together, and then we'll finish up. Jesus, thank you for the cross. We love you. We confess sin to you. We confess, God, our, our need for you. And we thank you that you are a God that hears our prayer. We thank you that you are a God that knows how to, to give life. You are a life-giving God. So God, I ask you even now that you would, even for me, God, forgive me, wash me from things I've held against you, things in which I've misjudged you, in ways in which I've held back in showing honor and love and care towards people that are marginalized in our culture and our society. God, I pray that you would just help us to realize that, that we are all that homeless person. We are all Naomi's. We are all Ruth's. We are all people that have been stigmatized in some way, shape, or form by culture and society and have been rejected by it. God, we thank you that you're a God that actually accepts the rejected. You accept the worthless. You call into active service and duty those who live within the margins. So God, we worship you and we praise you for that. And we sing songs to you.